Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, recording with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. The episode today is part of our Real Estate Forum series, and it is sponsored by Yardi, and we thank them for that. Our guest today is Jane Helmstetter, who is a partner at Bennett Jones. Thanks and welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thank you. So we're going to jump into all the legal ramifications of COVID-19 and what it means to you know our world of commercial real estate. But we always like to start off the episode by talking to our guest about you know their background and how they got to where they are. So Jane, if you can give us the version of how you got to where you are now, we would appreciate it. Well, I'm currently a partner at the law firm of Bennett Jones, and I'm the national co-head of the real estate practice group and the leader of the Toronto practice group. I've been practicing in the real estate area for a while. How I got here was really just a, a series of coincidences. I come from a family of historians, and what I really wanted to do was study ancient Roman history. But my father, who was a professor at U of T, assured me there were no jobs to be had. So that left me with law school. And following law school, I was looking for a job. And a fellow who was interviewing me said, do you know anything about real estate? And I said, no, but if you teach me, I'll learn. And I spent six years learning with him at a boutique real estate firm before coming downtown when I joined another law firm and stayed there for a number of years before joining Bennett Jones in 2006 and really haven't looked back. It's so well-established to say the least at uh, Bennett Jones, that's quite a while. And then what can you tell us about Bennett Jones, the company, for anybody not familiar with that law firm? Well, Bennett Jones is a full-service law firm. We have uh, about 400 lawyers and advisors in seven offices, five of which are in Canada. We are in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, and Ottawa. We started as a Calgary law firm a long time ago, (laughs) and began expanding from there. Really did the Toronto expansion starting about 20 years ago. There was a smaller office before that and moved into Vancouver more recently. But we do national work across the country and are focused on assisting our clients in all parts of the country. We have two offices in the U.S. that practice Canadian law in New York City and Washington, D.C. In terms of your company's day-to-day work, how much of it has shifted since, you know, we'll call it uh, middle of February? Like, how much has it shaken up the legal profession? That's an interesting question. There's been a big shift into trying to keep our clients as advised as possible on the impact of the pandemic on their business in terms of business continuity and recovery, trying to advise on simple things like, is your business an essential business or not? We have quite a large public policy group based in Ottawa, and they have been involved in both interpreting the communications that have come out of the federal government and also working with the federal government to try to sort out what is essential and what is not essential based on the information that our clients are are giving us. We have been, you know, as this works through, we're expecting to see various different impacts. The fact that the courts are not having, not sitting in person has obviously reduced the time that's being spent by the litigation group in court. On the other hand, they're spending time doing other things, 
some other people who do hearings are spending time on uh, teleconference hearings, electronic hearings. So some of the planning tribunals have been doing some of that by teleconference. We're seeing specifically on the real estate side an uptick in people wanting to have their contracts interpreted. What does this mean for loan agreements? Is this a material adverse effect? Is it a force majeure effect? Questions from tenants, can my landlord lock me out? So there's been different pockets of activity. I think a number of people have stopped doing new transactions, but then there are others who I think are going to look to see as the market changes whether there are assets that they think are on sale and they may start picking up those assets. So is it safe to say that, you know, likely the legal community in real estate will probably not be joining the unemployment lines, that uh, there's still lots of work? It just might have shifted in terms of the nature of it? I certainly hope that's the case. Okay, me, me too. <laughs> um, you know, we've been, it's hard to tell. We, uh, everybody is working remotely. And so it's harder to judge the levels of activity within the office when everybody is sitting in his or her house. And we're more reliant on the numbers. I can tell you that email traffic is way down, but, you know, we are also seeing some activity and some people continue to be quite busy. You know, I, I would say, fortunately, I spend a lot of time with lawyers working through and negotiating contracts with clients and our capital sources. And I'll be honest, I, as a quote unquote business person, sometimes I get frustrated, you know, dealing with, you know, these what if scenarios and contracts. And part of, I think, being a lawyer is to come up with what are the one in a one gazillion chance that something occurs and how do I ensure I'm protecting my client from that particular risk? As you've been going through, whether it's been leases or lending agreements or whatever it may be, have there been times where you've seen something and thought, well, good thing we put that in there or maybe vice versa, like, ooh, maybe we didn't have the strongest of language regarding, you know, force majeure or adverse material clauses or, or what have you? Yeah, absolutely. I had a client call me and ask me whether tenants could stop paying rent. And happily, wasn't a lease that I had drafted. And I said, well, let's have a look at your force majeure clause. And the force majeure clause did not have the standard language of, but nothing relieves the tenant of its obligation to pay rent. So that gave everybody a sort of sick feeling. Well, can we backtrack for but, a second and kind of talk about what force majeure is just for those that maybe... Uh, good idea. Be, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's define it. it just so that we can make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. Sure. So force majeure is sometimes referred to as unavoidable delay. And generally, it's a short form way of saying a delay that's caused by something out of the control of the party who is supposed to be taking an action. So if a party is required to, for example, construct a building and the municipality refuses to issue building permits, that might be a force majeure or it might not, depending on how your force majeure clause was written. In this case, where the government declares a business to be a non-essential business and effectively requires that it be closed, that's going to fall into the category of a governmental order or directive that is clearly beyond the power of the party who's being affected by it and would be an unavoidable delay or a force measure. So who would be harmed by it the most and who would be helped by it the most, do you think, given that a global pandemic would be deemed force majeure? I think that once it turns into a truly global pandemic, that you really, it really has to be seen as a force majeure. Some force majeure clauses specifically include the word pandemic. But at this point, with the declaration of the state of emergency, the obligations on businesses to close, 
all of those things, the, the requirement that no more than a certain number of people be together at any one time, all of those things, I think, are clearly beyond the control of the ordinary person or business and I think would have to be considered to be a force majeure. And, and I don't know who would be harmed and who would benefit. I think it's really going to depend on the situation and, and is probably going to be a knock-on effect, right? I mean, it's when one person can't do something, it usually impacts the second person, and then that person is going to be, in turn, impacting the third person. So, for example, if a tenant doesn't pay rent, the landlord's now out of pocket and may not be able to pay its mortgage, and so now the lender's got a problem, so it hurts the whole system. Do you think in the going forward we're going to see sort of specific pandemic clauses now in, in contracts? I think you will. They're already in some contracts. After SARS, there was a push to put them into a number of contracts, and then people happily forgot about SARS and stopped thinking so much about pandemics. But if you look at leases of some large landlords, some of them have included quite extensive pandemic clauses. And is the force majeure clause, does, does it wipe the obligations in the agreement or delay them until the situation causing can be rectified? Or how does that work? It delays it for the period of the event. So if there were to be an order that the pandemic was over on April 30th and everybody could go back to their usual Don't business. tease us, Jane. Don't tease us with April 30th. <laughs> that seems unrealistic. Oh, I was just so hoping. <laughs> um, but but let's just in, in our utopian world where we can imagine that, then that would be the end of the force majeure period. We might have some difficulty figuring out what start of the force majeure period was because it crept up on us as people started to worry about it, but there were no actual orders and people started sending folks home. And then eventually there were statements from the government that people really ought to try to stay home. And then eventually you got to the declaration of the state of emergency. So, you know, where exactly the delay starts and where it ends will be harder to figure out. In some cases, it may not be so hard to figure out. So, for example, the shutting down of the construction sites that happened on Friday, you might be able to say, okay, well, that was when it started for construction. On the other hand, if you had a problem getting your construction workers in because they weren't reporting to work because they said they shouldn't have to be there, perhaps it started earlier. And that's a good segue to the just the, the topic of liens and just how all of a sudden there's certain periods of time that are get embedded in contracts. They've all been waived. Can you maybe can you give us some specific examples? Sure. The big example is that the limitation periods are on hold at the moment. So the limitation periods are something that is created to say that if you don't do something within a certain period of time, then you can't do it after that. So it's in the context of making a claim against someone or suing someone, you have to do it within a certain period of time after the event happens or else you can't bring it up. So on construction liens, there are periods of time for somebody who's been supplying services or materials to a site to register a lien on title if that person hasn't been paid. And given that the limitation period isn't running right now, it can be quite difficult to know whether all of the suppliers have been paid. And this could cause problems in a number of different situations. So for example, if a landlord was going to pay a tenant allowance to a tenant, normally the landlord has 
the right to hold back a certain amount until the lien period has run and the landlord is certain that there are no construction liens registered on its building. And now, with that period not ending, we may see some difficulties in terms of paying out the tenant allowance. And that's particularly difficult for the tenants under these circumstances, since I'm sure they actually really need the money. So I'm not really sure what the solution to it is, but it is a problem. How do you turn it back on? I guess you have to pick a date and say, okay, starting April 30th, using that date, you have until yep. then? Like, Yeah, okay. yeah that, that, that's the time the time starts to run again. Hmm. And this will be a problem for general litigation as well. Yeah, sure. So this will keep the lawyers employed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are registrar's offices handling this? Because a lot of the, those offices, you know, across the country need physically signed documents delivered. You know, are they making any concessions? Well, in Ontario, we're lucky because with the TerraView system, it's electronic and we register most documents electronically and we do it with PDF signatures from our clients or DocuSign signatures or some sort of electronic signatures. So what I would call run-of-the-mill registrations in Ontario are keeping going. The land registry office in Ontario is on limited hours, so it does mean that registrations that are more complicated or have to be done on paper are going to take longer. Examples of those would be registration of correcting orders where you need to actually get in touch with a real person at the registry office who then has to go into the system and change something. Or registrations of new condominiums where the existing land has to be broken up into hundreds of new parcel pages that reflect each of the different condominium units. So that's going to take longer, but as long as there are still people there, we hope it will keep going. In Alberta, where they have the so-called wet ink, things seem to have slowed down altogether, stopped for the registration. The interesting thing is that the title companies are, at least some of them, are stepping up to the plate and offering a new endorsement for this. It's an extension of their gap insurance so that you can complete a transaction without registering if you can't register, as long as you're prepared to register as soon as you can. And how does that work? So then the title insurance is then protecting you in the event that something is registered before you end up getting on title? Yeah. So the title policies in Canada contain just in the ordinary course of things what's called gap insurance. And we use it in a couple of different ways. In jurisdictions such as Alberta, where there is a lag between delivering something for registration and having it actually pop out the other end as registered, the gap insurance applies automatically as though it were registered. So people can release funds on a property purchase, for example. The buyer can be assured that it has the property. If, in point of fact, some intervening registration has occurred and, you know, let's assume that there's a construction lien that's popped up on title between the time that the closing occurred and the time that registration occurs, then the title company is responsible to make it go away, fix the problem. Interesting. And then to stay on the theme of construction, what about the end users of the real estate? You know, for the significant delays in construction that come up for this, if you've got a commercial tenant with a, you know, a hard start date that you committed to in a lease, what happens in a situation like that? Must be force majeure. Would that not come into play? (laughs) 
Yeah, that's going to be force majeure. Now, sometimes leases are written with commercial tenants to say, even if there's force majeure, if the delay goes on for more than 60 days, 120 days, the lease terminates. If that's there, then the parties have to negotiate a way out of it. Um, yeah, it's not like the it's not like the tenants got anywhere else to go. Probably, so they're probably happy just to sit there and wait, given the circumstances that are transpiring. Yeah, you would hope so. The bigger problem, I suspect, under those circumstances, is a tenant who has committed to moving out of its current space and it has no space to move into. And if you get the knock-on effect that you know that space has been relet, and there's second tenant who's expecting to move into the first tenant's space, again, there's got to be a negotiated solution to this. And again, the lawyers stay employed, right? Negotiated solution sounds like uh, legal work. So (laughs) that is the good news. (laughs) The lawyers and the real estate brokers, because the brokers are going to be the ones negotiating the business solution. Yeah, true. The other hot topic, I guess, uh, right now is, we touched on it briefly earlier, was rent payment. You know, what are the obligations for withholding rent? I mean, I know that we're, as a lender, we're seeing the knock-on effect that you're referring to, of course, which is tenants looking for rent deferrals then translate into, you know, mortgage deferrals at the the lender's end, you know, and and on and on the knock-on effect goes. But what are the, if a landlord was to play hardball with a commercial tenant, what what are the options? Well, the landlord, it's an interesting question because the answer is that under most commercial leases, there is no right to not pay rent. And... So the tenant is obligated to pay rent, and if it doesn't pay rent, the landlord has a right to terminate. The landlord's right of termination is usually a self-help right, and so it just goes in and locks the doors and gives a notice that the, the lease has been terminated and usually that it intends to sue in damages. The tenant's remedy under those circumstances is to bring an application for what we call relief against forfeiture, which is essentially an emergency application to the court to ask the court to not allow the landlord to terminate the lease. The problem that we have is that the courts are not hearing these applications, or at least they're hearing only urgent and emergency applications. And there's been an indication from the government that they're not supposed to enforce writs of eviction. So they're not supposed to evict the tenant. So it's a bit of a problem from that perspective. Most of the landlords that I know don't want to play hardball with their tenants and they don't want to lose the revenue. And so they're trying to work with tenants who are genuinely impacted by the problem. And some tenants are not as impacted as others, obviously. And so under those circumstances, what we're seeing is some deferral and extension of the term, some blend and extend, anything to try to keep the tenancy there and keep the revenue coming in. And then what about on the residential side, you know, specifically apartments, you know, that's our favorite asset class. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on tenants withholding rent in apartment scenarios. Well, that's not, residential leasing is not one of my particular areas of expertise, but I don't think that there's a particular right for them to not pay the rent. I do think that it's going to be significantly harder for landlords to take any sort of hardball action because there are limited reasons why a residential landlord can terminate a lease and the tenants have access to the landlord-tenant board or to the 
tribunal to make the decision and they're not sitting in person, it's going to be harder to get in there. I mean, I, I think from a practical perspective, it's going to be very difficult for landlords to do anything. Reputational perspective as well. I think there's a real challenge to be doing that yeah. in the face of, you know, the pressure from government to just everybody working together, everybody be part of, you're all part of one big society. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the reputational perspective is also going to have an impact on the commercial landlord. Certainly, I don't think you're going to see any of the big name commercial landlords coming out there and doing anything that would be, you know, would cause people to gasp. So nobody's being overly litigious at this point? Not that we've seen. I think that the litigation will be seen when we finally... I hate to say return to normal because I'm not sure we're ever going back to where we were. But I when think we stop, when we stop going to work in our basements, like that's the <laughs> yeah, exactly. When we when we stop going to work in our basements, I think that that's when you're going to see people sit back and take stock and say, okay, who should have been making these payments and who didn't, and you know, where would it be reasonable to try to recover something. Okay. And then uh, one more question before we get let you go. And I guess this would be more of a forward-looking question. What do you see changing in the very near term for people entering into contracts that would have to involve some sort of subject to coronavirus aspect? Well, I think one of the interesting things that's going to change is there's often no force majeure clause in an offer to lease or an agreement of purchase and sale. And I think we're going to see that change in the near term. I think nobody's going to do a new deal unless they have the ability to delay it if things get dramatically worse. I think on any sort of purchase that you're either going to see people doing it with cash or with a financing condition. I don't think you're going to see anybody doing a deal that they're locked into if they don't know they have the ability to close it with the, you know, the funding to close it. And that would be the reality of the landscape until things improve, which, which does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Jane. That was, you know, there's so much moving parts to it. I can't remember if we stamped it or not, but it's, today is April 6th. So it's April 6th, 2020. We're still kind of in the early stages of figuring out what implications this have. Of course, legal ramifications are kind of, you know, quite frankly, the backbone on basically everything we do in the commercial real estate world. So clearly there's going to have some significant impact, you know, particularly around sort of the force majeure. It sounds like that kept coming up. We'd like to thank First National for powering the podcast. Thank you to Yardi for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you to the Real Estate Forum for introducing us to Jane. Thank you to Adam for hosting with me. And thank you, Jane, for coming on. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jane. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.